Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. Okanwa, what is the first brand that you remember making an impact on you? I remember going to a mall and there was this long line and it was the Mac counter and it was a beauty counter. And the people who were standing in line were white, black, Hispanic, like they were of every kind of shade of humanity that you could imagine. And that didn't really exist before. I joined this line and I talked to a makeup artist that didn't necessarily look like me but like really understood me. And I just realized that like, it was really the first brand that embraced inclusivity. And for me, inclusivity wasn't just that like black people understood black people. It was that the white people were trained to understand black people. And everybody at Mac had to understand everybody else. You just hadn't seen that before. And I felt so seen And I always say that it was particularly special that I then got to be the CMO for that same brand that touched me when I didn't even know I wanted to be a marketer. I just knew that what they were doing was so special and I wanted to be a part of it. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, But the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Ukanma Ojo, who just this summer left her role as global chief marketing officer for Amazon Prime Video and Studios. Ukanma worked on the marketing strategies and campaigns for many of my favorite series, including Being the Ricardos, The Boys, and The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel. Amazon Prime was Ukanma's third CMO role. She has been the chief marketing officer and general manager for Cody's consumer beauty portfolio, which includes CoverGirl, Clairol, and Sally Hansen. She has also been the global chief marketing officer for MAC Cosmetics. Ukanma moved from Nigeria to the U.S. when she was 15 and later earned her bachelor's degree from the University of North Carolina and her MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern. This episode was recorded in late August during the Next Gen CMO program at Deloitte University a simply amazing training and development center outside Dallas. Each year for the last eight years, Deloitte has invited high potential marketing leaders from a variety of companies to gather for three days of inspiration, training, and reflection. This is my inspiring conversation with a woman who believes drive is the most critical leadership characteristic. Here's Kanwa Ojo. Well, we're here at the Deloitte University Training Center and the Next Gen CMO Academy, which both you and I have been a part of. I know you arrived about a day ago. You've been networking, meeting some new friends, some yeah, old friends. Yeah. So could you talk about an experience you've had since you've been here or a discussion or an event yeah. or a speaker that sort of has had an impact on you? It's funny. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. I definitely had one of those moments yesterday when I ran into a friend, Gabrielle. I hadn't seen her in like 10 or 11 years. And we saw each other across the courtyard and we literally just like squealed and ran for each other and hugged for like a couple minutes. Aww. So um, I'm thankful to Deloitte University for like reuniting us because I hadn't seen her in a while. It was really, really, really So what special. did you catch up on? 
life in general? Everything. Yeah. Like we talked about everything. Life, our kids, our husbands, our jobs, how we ended up here. Like like everything. And I'm so um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to see her and to catch up. It was really special. That's the best. Well, we were chatting a few weeks ago and we discovered we had something in common. We have both worked <laughs> in the same brand in different decades. And that brand is CoverGirl. And I worked on it after P&G made the acquisition. I was one of the first people sent to the acquisition. And this was back in the 90s. And you worked on it much more recently with Cody as the owner. Yeah. So I'd like you to riff a little bit about, I mean, CoverGirl was number one when I worked on it. Mm -hmm. So what is it about that brand and how it's been managed that has kept it in a leadership position for so long? That is not easy to do mm. as you know um yeah cover is a very very special brand because it when i remember talking when i joined CoverGirl, that i stood on the shoulders of giants because there's so many people along the way who have stewarded the brand and just made it stand for something um something very meaningful something very powerful and so in terms of brand power within um in, within the beauty industry and brand equity, it is number one in customers' minds because it does stand for something very, very meaningful for people. And that is, yes, it's about beauty, but it's also about strength and empowerment and community of different women. Um, and I think that's just resonated across different generations, across different demographics. Like it's really powerful what generations of marketers have actually done to to build that brand from you to AC to me. Like there's mm. so many people who've, yeah. you know, touched the brand and just made it really, really special. And so I'm, I'm so grateful to have been one of those people. What do you feel most proud of in your time at CoverGirl? Mm. I'm most proud of the fact that we did a lot of firsts in beauty and we had a different way of telling the inclusivity story um, because we talked about, you know, racial inclusivity, but then we also talked about vocational diversity as well and inclusivity which in beauty you didn't see a lot of. And so having brand ambassadors that weren't necessarily only from the entertainment sector um, and had business women and, you know, we had a model in, in May Musk with her. Mm -hmm. um, now she's so much more famous now. Um, but yeah, I think um, what we did to bring to the forefront athletes in beauty and business owners like Ayesha Curry in beauty and a director and a comedian like Issa Rae. I mean, those were just conversations that we weren't having in beauty. Um, and so I'm so glad to be a part of the team that pushed that conversation forward and just showed that women have a lot of commas in our lives and we play a lot of different roles and, and makeup really helps us to um, transition through all of those. And so I'm proud of the team and I'm proud of the work that we did there. That's why the brand's so strong, right? People like yourself just keep respecting what it's been, but it's reinventing been. it for the yeah. future. I remember a big lesson I took away from it. When I went, there was tremendous conflict between P&G and Noxell, which is what the mm. company was called at mm. the time. We were not a good acquirer. Mm. We were not respecting who they were, where they came from. And I was sent down there and obviously they didn't trust me. I was mm. the guy from headquarters mm. from Cincinnati. And I just asked the team, I said, can we just reserve a day and take me back to the beginning mm. and tell me the entire story of mm. this brand and everything about it. Show me things. Mm. And it took us more than a day. It was such a fabulous experience, but I bonded with them. Mm. I listened and, and we had gotten away from some of the principles, not the tactics, the principles that had made that brand successful. And we got back to it and it really aligned us and and 
sent the brand, I think, in the in the absolute right direction. It's just been up since then. That's amazing. It's an amazing, That's amazing lesson. Yeah. To go back to the history yeah. with the team. Yeah. And not yeah. to copy it, but to understand it. Understand it. It's in the DNA. It's yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Now, we're going to come back to your career path in a bit, but I would like to go back further to a huge, at least from what I see, <laughs> a huge transition in your life. You moved from your home country mm-hmm. to the U.S. Yeah. As a, te- as a 15-year-old. Yeah. Crazy. Now, I've moved kids. We've lived around the world. <laughs> it's not easy at any age. It's really hard at it's 15. It's really hard. So could you go back to that and tell us about how you managed that transition and how that helped shape some of the decisions yeah. on college and major and what you yeah. want to study? Um, it's funny. Before I left, my dad gave me this little pup talk in our living room in Lagos. And he said to me, he's like, you know how you just went to driving school? And I ended up getting my Nigerian license at the time. And he said, remember all that your teacher had taught you? This is how you break. This is how you accelerate. This is how you, you know, trafficate. Or that's what we called it in Nigeria at the time. This turn signal here. Mm-hmm. This is how you do all these things. And so he's like, when it came time for you to do your driving test, you didn't have to obey any of those. But then you probably either wouldn't have passed your driving test or you'd have gotten yourself hurt or killed. Um, he's like, it's the same here. You've spent 15 years here. I've taught you a lot and I've shown you a lot. And then now you get to go. And I hope wow. you're going to listen to everything that I've taught you. And if you do, you'll get your driving license. You'll live your life. You have a great life. You have a full life. Or you can choose to go to America and do something totally different than all I've taught you. But if you trust that I have your best interest at heart and everything I've taught you is everything you're going to need, you'll be fine. And with that, he like sent me off to a totally different country <laughs> to go get my education. And he was right. And so I will never forget that moment that we shared together and the advice that he gave me, because that is what I did. I was like, he taught me well, my mom taught me well. And just living that and just asking myself, would they be proud of me in this moment? Would they be proud of this decision in this moment? And so even though they weren't physically here, knowing and hearing their voice in my head, it guided me to make the right decisions, even when I didn't know, like, what do I think they would expect from me in this moment? And he's right. We didn't crash. Um, We're still here. Made a lot of great decisions along the way. Made a lot of mistakes along the way. But for the most part, made a lot of great decisions along the way. And and he was right. That must have been hard for them. Yeah. I would imagine so. I have have a son now. I can't imagine having Mm -hmm. to send him to a totally different country without me to go live his life. So it was hard, but it's, you know, it's like the ego. You just kind of drop the baby and just hope they fly. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. What led you to business? I mean, were there other things you were considering? I know you like fashion. You yeah, like beauty. Yeah, I love fashion. Was love- there, were you tempted to do that route? Or what, what yeah. kind of, what, what It's interesting. Business? I actually came to the U.S. because I loved business. So my father was a pilot and his... Uh, his strategy with his kids is you can go to school anywhere in the world you want, you choose. And um, my, some of my siblings chose the UK, some of you know siblings chose Canada. And I said, I love business and US is such a capitalistic you know, society. Like business is 
um, is strong here. And I want to learn how to work in business from the country I believe does it the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how I chose the U.S. That's why I chose to come to school here. Part of that came from the fact that my father was a businessman. He started as, as a pilot. He eventually went out on his own and started his own company and he never went back. And he decided to be a businessman. And I got to work with him before I left the U.S. I, you know, worked in the finance office and I helped them with, you know, bookkeeping and accepting Mm -hmm. payments and all that kind of stuff. And so that's how I fell in love with math and business and entrepreneurship. And I, just like him, once I switched into the business career, I've I've changed functions from Mm -hmm. finance to marketing, but I never fundamentally, you know, left business. Well, you eventually landed at the Kellogg School. You earned your MBA, and after that, you launched a crazy good blue chip career in consumer goods. I mean, General Mills, Reckitt, Unilever, Cody, Mac, before moving to Amazon Prime Video and Studios. If you were to start your career again, mm. would you still start it in consumer goods? Totally. You would? Yeah, because I, I believe the best CMOs are left and right-brained. And when you start your career in consumer goods, One, you learn the discipline of listening to the customer because people say they listen to the customer, but in consumer packaged goods, you actually taught the discipline of doing that. You do it quantitatively, you do it qualitatively, you do it anecdotally. You really learn to be empathetic towards the customer. You learn to steward a brand, but you also own the P&L and you are responsible for delivering against the P&L. And that teaches you from the very beginning to be both left and right brain, to say, yes, you're responsible for innovation. You're responsible for creativity and advertising, but at the end of the day, that is only valuable when it drives the P&L. Other than that, it's just entertainment. It's not, yeah. it's not useful, right? And so I go back a lot to what I learned in my early days in consumer packaged goods to be successful you know, today or in, in the jobs that I've had, because I've had to be a good business person in addition to being a good having a great eye for creative. And so I I like to call it the math and the magic. And you learn that craft um, in consumer packaged goods very, very early on. And that pays dividends really throughout your career. And a lot of, you know, the world's best CEOs have that same discipline. They came up through that same path. So I I would still recommend it. I would still go back and, and go through the same route. I wouldn't change anything about it. You gave us the headline for this episode, by the way, the math and the magic. Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> so thank you for that gift. <laughs> you know, the other thing about consumer goods, and I've noticed since this since I left PNG and I've worked with a range of industries and companies, marketing is often not a career path mm. in a company. And in the companies that you grew up in and that I grew up in, it's a career path. Mm-hmm. You come in on a certain a train for it, there's skills, there's a there's there's a job you can move to after another mm-hmm. one. Uh, and so that makes a huge difference because you think about people development, you think about mm-hmm. their career, think about the experiences they should get. That doesn't happen in a lot of companies who they, they move people in and out of marketing. So it's a, it's work, but it's not a function. It's not a discipline. And you didn't always have control over what assignment you got next. That's right. And that taught you a lot because you did. thought you knew what yeah. you needed to do. And they were like, no, 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 no. Here's what we think you need to do. Sometimes they were right. Sometimes they were wrong, but you always learned something. And so with each assignment, you picked up a different skill. And it doesn't seem consequential in the moment. But then when you look at the end of a career and everything you learned at every role, you realize that you're drawing on all of that right now. And so there's some beauty to that kind of 
which felt very rigid at the time. But then you, you look back and you go, I'm so grateful for all the people that I met. I'm so grateful for all the relationships I built along the way. I'm so grateful for all the skills that I picked up along the way that gave me confidence that I could be successful in a lot of different situations mm -hmm. and circumstances. And then you draw on that when you have to be fearless later on. You're like, oh, yeah, like there's nothing that I can't um, that I can't tackle. Like I've been put in situations that were totally uncomfortable and I and I was fine. So this is going to be no different than that. Yeah, I, I did not want to go to CoverGirl at P&G. I wanted to go international. Mm. I, in all my career plan, I just, I want to go abroad. I want to go abroad. Mm. I want that international experience. They said, well, no, later, mm. but we want you to go to the acquisition. Mm. And, and it was a very challenging experience that I still draw upon, to mm. your point. Yeah. I wouldn't have chose that, but it was a really tough environment I walked into. And I learned a lot about myself and about leadership in that assignment. And I'm so happy that, that the company saw that. that and I didn't. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, Getting back to your career path, which of those experiences that you have had for you has been the most developmental? I just talked about mm. my experience at CoverGirl, hugely developmental. When I was sent to Eastern Europe, very developmental as my first general manager job. So when you think about your career path, mm. what was the most stretching? The one where you just feel like you evolved the most and the fastest as a leader? Um, that's a tough one. I don't have any one. There are some like very, very pivotal moments that I can think of. I would say one, one of those assignments I got was being head of Cascadian Farm at General Mills. And I had run big brands. I did Progresso, then I did Honey Nut Cheerios. And so I had a playbook. Then they put me on Cascadian Farm Organic, and it was a completely different playbook. I had a lot of SKUs. I had no marketing money. And I had a lot of customers that weren't just customers, they were believers mm. in the organic movement. And you didn't just like have a one-way conversation with them like I was used to. They talked back and they talked back loudly. And so the way that you built a relationship with them and the way that you marketed with them was completely different than anything I had ever done before. And then I had a team of people that were very different. I had a farmer as a direct, my, one of my direct reports. I was like, I've never had a farmer before in my team. Because cool we had a, you know, we had a farm in Skagit yeah. Valley, um, Washington. And so I was so uncomfortable. I had never done that before. I had my own creative team because they did all their own in-house creative. And so it was so uncomfortable for me. And I learned so much. And my team taught me so much. They taught me about the organic movement. They taught me about why it was important to avoid pesticides. They taught me about how to ha run a farm, how to manage a company store. Like They taught me all of those things. And they taught me how to market today, modern marketing, two-way Mm -hmm. dialogue with your customers that is unexpected and delightful and surprising. And I have never forgotten that. It has paid dividends throughout my entire career. So I would say like that was a really important one. When I joined Reckitt, um, I was on the French's brand and then they moved me to manage the Durex brand out of London and I had never worked internationally. And so having to be successful in a different or um, different environment than I grew up in was really, really important. And it was also important to me personally, because over time I had naturalized to become an American because I'd always described myself as Nigerian. And then I became an American and then I moved to the UK, but I never felt American because in America I would open my mouth and be like, where are you from? And then I moved to the UK and I would open my mouth and they were like, you're American. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm American. And it was the first time in my adult life that I was like, I'm American. 
And I spent those years like feeling American outside America for the first time. And so when I came back to America, I started describing myself as Nigerian American. But the last time I was here, I just said I was Nigerian. But I was like, no, I am American. Like, I believe a lot of the ideals here. And it makes up of so much of who I am. And now I've actually spent more time here than I did in Nigeria. And so I came back with a different level of self-knowledge and self-confidence, not only in having done things in multiple countries, um, having a full-on like global role and all of that, um, but also personally being fully confident that I was as American as I was Nigerian. um, And I have embraced that, you know, ever since. I did a lot of research before this interview. I watched a lot of videos of you, read a lot of stories about you. Thank and you it for was, that. And it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but I, I kind of gathered a few leadership principles mm. that you hold very Please tell me. I probably don't right? even know them myself. <laughs> I think you will. And the first one, it's about career success. Mm. And it is that drive is the biggest thing in career success. Mm. Could you talk a bit about that, where that principle comes from, why you believe in it so firmly? Yeah, I just, um, I believe that human beings are really incredible. And the most important thing is we just got to want it, first of all. And if we don't want it, there's no point. Mm -hmm. And so if you, you can have highly, highly capable people on your team, but if they come and they don't play to win, they're not going to win. You know, they're not going to win. They know they're not going to win. and You're just wasting a lot of time. But if you have someone that's like, I'm here, I'm playing to win. Let me know what you need me to do. If I don't know it, I'm going to learn it. And if I know it, I'm going to apply it. That's the best person to have on your team. That's who you want to be in the trenches with. But to have someone who's learned a lot and they have a lot in their brain, but they don't want to apply any of it um, and you have to push them, I would rather, I would much rather pull someone back than push them. It is really painful as a leader to have to push. Um, But to have someone who's like, let me at it, let me at it. You're like, hold on a minute. Like you love, there's so much joy and energy when you have folks on your team that are like, let us know what we need to do. Like we're here. Or actually I have five ideas. Which one do you like? You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I asked for one. You have five. Okay. Like go for it. Like, let's see. Um, You leadership experience feels so different for both parties um, when you're playing to win. You've worked in big companies, so how did you build teams Mm. that had those kind of people on the team? Because I agree with you. It's wonderful being in a situation like that, but it's sometimes tough to build that Mm. when you're in a big team. But how how are you effective at picking your team or recruiting them or Mm. finding them Mm. in the culture? Yeah, I think um, a lot of times when you work for a big company, your team is the team you have. So I think in a startup, you can like build a completely different team. But um, because I've worked largely for for large organizations, yes, you hire in new folks, but a lot of times you come in with the team that you have, um, like even in your leadership team, a lot of times you, you come in with a team that you have and you have to be successful with that team. And I've found that as humans, we tend to do what is celebrated. And so the examples that you pick to be celebrated, um, the things that you highlight and reward people will replicate that. Um, and so as a leader, one of the things that you that is important is, A, you come in and you set a vision and you set expectations of like what the future can look like if we achieve it together. You build it together, but people do look to leadership to be like, what is the vision? Where are we going? And I think in doing that, you should set the expectations of like how we're going to work and how we're going to do this and, and the kind of attitude that we should embrace when we do that. That's really, really important. 
And then two, show them what it looks like. So when someone demonstrates what you think is great, celebrate that and be very specific about what it is about that behavior that made it really special. If you do that often enough, more people in the organization will start to do the exact same thing. Um, it's, it's, just like our natural human nature, right? And yeah. so what we yeah. what we celebrate as leaders is most likely to be replicated. Yeah. When I took over as CMO at P&G, we were in a funk. Company was mm. not doing well. And you know, one of the first things I did is I, I returned to an award show for mm. the best marketing of the year in multiple categories around mm. the world. And we used to do that, but got away from it. Mm. And you know the power of that? Yes, it's fun to come together, blah, blah, blah. But it just shows the organization, as you say, here is what winning looks like. Here's what great looks like. Here's what we aspire to. Here's why we joined this company. Mm -hmm. It was a big driver in changing expectations. Expectations. Yeah, Yeah. it's very powerful. Now, our listeners will not be surprised so far by this principle. Look for work that gives you positive energy. You're full of positive energy. I've gotten to know you over the last day. (laughs) So it's very clear. But I want you to talk about, you say, look for positive energy. What are the conditions? Mm. How do you know it's there? Mm. How do you create it? Mm. What are the conditions that tell us that this is a environment of positive energy? Yeah, um, you can definitely create it. But one of the things I know about myself is I am an extrovert, Myers-Briggs. And the thing about, I'm jealous of introverts because introverts can create their own energy very easily. They do it all the time. Extroverts get energy from other people. And so for me to build energy momentum, I need to be surrounded with people that have positive energy. So first, that those early conversations when you're considering being a part of the team are so important because you have to ask yourself, these people that I'm talking to are the folks that are, I'm going to be building with. Are Am I leaving each conversation more energized than when I came into it? And if that's not happening in the interview stage, I guarantee you it will not happen when, when you join, right? So I think that even early on, that's a really important part. Um, and then later on, I think it's, um, I fundamentally believe that we are the most creative when we are playing. Um, and so bringing to each interaction that you have some element of joy some element of momentum that gives everybody else the license to do the same. And it becomes this beautiful cycle as an extrovert, because you kind of come in and you put a spark, people catch on with that spark, and then you continue to receive that spark. And then you get energy from that spark, and then you give it out, and then other people build off of it, and you get it again. And you know, at the point where you're like, oh, the energy's shifted, the energy's changed. And you have to be very mindful of that, either because of the work or because of the folks that are on the team. And so as a leader where energy is really important, you have to be so mindful about the folks that you introduce to your teams because one person can completely change the energy of the group. And so what I talk about with my team is like high capability, high humanity, because if you bring somebody into the team that's not human, that's not vulnerable, that's not careful about other people, that's not respectful of other people, you can have this high-performing, loving, collaborative organization completely become toxic because you introduced one element into it. It puts a lot of pressure um, on you as a leader, but that is extremely, extremely important because that energy is where you're going to drive a lot of innovation and a lot of creativity. You have to protect it at all costs. This positive energy you're talking about, joy is a word you used. 
you've been working remote as we all have over the last couple mm. of years. What, what were your strategies to bring joy mm. to work in that environment? Because I've talked to a lot of leaders who say, listen, hybrid is the way we're all going, but we're not getting as much joy mm. in our work as we used to. And how do we build joy in this new way we're working? So do you have any <laughs> tips or experience yeah. in bringing joy and positive energy in the work environment that we're all in right now? I love I love that question because it's a hard one, right? Because we've all struggled no with it. it out. Yeah, I would say one, you can't give what you don't have. And so one, making sure individually as a leader that your cup is full. And there are a lot of things that we do individually that gives us joy. For me, my friendships, my family, my faith, time outside and outdoors, like those music. Oh my God, I love Afrobeat. Music, like those are the things that bring me joy. And so making sure that my tank is full so that when I am with my team, I have, or the team, it doesn't necessarily have to be my team. It could be a cross-functional team. It could be a leadership team. Um, so that I have that joy to give. My tank needs to be full. Learning tools that kind of shift the mindset of the team. So for example, my weekly leadership meeting, we start off with what I call a check-in. And so before we go through any business um, insights or anything like that, we just go, how are you? And everybody gets to go around and answer that question, how they are. And a lot of times that like so many stories will be shared from the weekend before whatever. And we'll start off laughing or supporting Joy. each other mm -hmm. or crying. Like it all depends on what yeah. happened, right? Because it's how are you? And sometimes it's sad and sometimes it's happy, but it just injects a different energy into the conversation, a lot of times a joyous energy, but even if it's not joyous, it injects a supportive energy yeah. like, oh, I didn't know you were going through that. How can I support you? Um, and it brings a humanity to the leadership team that's very different than just going right into the business because we miss all those water cooler moments and like the hallway conversations. And so it's a way to get at that without having that, you know, physical moment. And then I also have what I call a kiki with my full marketing organization once a month. And we start off a kiki with music. So, and it's hybrid. We can't totally play music. So mm -hmm. we'll put a YouTube link and everybody needs to watch it for like, it's a music video. It's like three minutes or whatever. Yeah. So they'll watch it. And then when I come on, I play a little bit of it and like, it just adds a different energy to the conversation. And then we transition into the kiki and to the agenda, but it totally changes the energy. It's not the same as like having that in real life, but music is a legal drug. We should use it often. Um, and it's a perfect way to, to set the tone and to change the energy. Great, simple ideas, right? Yeah. yeah. Just very human. What do we all love? Music, yeah. Yeah, outdoors, yeah. culture. It gets to the soul. It's, deep, it's deeper yeah. than, it's not a yeah. mind thing. Yeah. It gets to the soul of, of who we are and moves us and, and shifts and changes the energy. Now, last principle, you have others, I'm sure. Never give anyone an excuse to not have you in the room. And when you are in the room, be heard. I fundamentally believe that. Um, we've seen so much data that says diverse teams make better decisions. They have better impact because you have different perspectives. Um, I know that it can be very intimidating to be the only. I've been the only a lot of times. Um, but you do such a disservice to bring a diverse perspective, but not speak it, to bring a diverse perspective, but not be it. Then like, what's the point just for the picture of it? Mm -hmm. 
Um, you're there for a reason. You're there because you bring a perspective that will not be heard or seen or felt or experienced if you weren't there. And so if you rob your team and your leadership and your org and your company of that, then we've missed the entire point of the whole thing. The thing is, though, they may not know always that they need your perspective. It may not always be welcome, but regardless of whether they know it or not, you have to bring it because that's why you're there. And if they're not ready to receive a different perspective, then you are in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just think it's really, really important. And I try to live my life that way. If I'm going to be here, I'm going to be different because I am different. And I'm not going to succumb to this pressure to become everything that's around me because that's how I ended up here is I believe this company, this brand, this business would be different because I'm going to add um, a perspective that didn't exist before I entered the room. So why rob our customers who are looking to me to represent them? Because that's the whole point is you have all these customers that you can now appeal to that you don't have their perspective. And so now I'm here. I have to be a voice for them. I have to articulate everything they wish somebody would articulate in that room if they were there. And so I think that when we are in the room, we have to think of the millions and sometimes billions of people who look like us, who behave like us, who have experiences like us, who don't have a chance to be there. And you advocate for them. You stand in the gap for them and you be heard. You have worked for a number of companies, as most of my guests have, and I ask this question a lot because it's always interesting. How do you know when it's time to move on mm-hmm. versus stay? Because yeah. you know, there's always opportunities if you stay, but there's opportunities when you leave as well, and that's that's a tough call in our Very lives. How do you know, in your experience, how do you know mm. when it's time to move to something else? What are the conditions? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I'm a person of faith. Um, and so I'll tell, I'll walk you through the steps that I go through. One, I pray about it. And this is my literal prayer. I'm like, God, if this is not from you, shut the door so tight, I can't pry it open. And if this is from you, open the door so wide, I can't shut it. Um, so that is literally a prayer that I pray whenever I'm looking at a new opportunity. I also have a personal board of directors and it's a very diverse group of folks. Most of them are not even in business, but they're people who know me really well And they've known about my ambition and needs and wants and dreams and desires my entire life. And so when I have a new opportunity, they can go, oh, my God, this reminds me of something you said when you were whatever, whatever. And I totally could see you loving this. Or why are you even entertaining this? Is The money must be good because this sounds like nothing I have ever heard from you. And so they hold you accountable to your dreams and they hold you accountable to your desires. Um, and so I love my personal board of directors for that. And they're, like I said, they're mostly not even business people, but they're people who, who know me really well. And then I would also look at what your ambitions are and what your current organization is sharing with you about their ability to help you achieve that. And if you have the support to achieve that ambition there, totally do that. I definitely think that if you are supported and you have great sponsors and you have a great career path, I think it's incredible to to be in a place um, where you have that. But if you don't and you have a great opportunity that 
is better than whatever, you know, what's it in um, best alternative to a negotiated agreement in BATNA, right? So if you have an alternative that's better than what you're being offered, life is short. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you owe yourself the opportunity to, to try that. And then the last bit is um, we talked a little bit about energy and I pay a lot of attention to energy. And so sometimes it's time to move on when you find that you are giving out more energy than you're receiving. Um, and that just leads to burnout. It leads to exhaustion. And sometimes you just, you need fresh energy. You need positive energy. You need new energy. And so pay attention to your energy. If you're feeling more depleted than full on a consistent basis, you will have good days and you will have bad days. But if you have 30 days and 20 of the 30 is depletion and exhaustion, pay attention to that. Have a conversation with the company that you're with and say, hey, like, here's how I'm feeling. I feel like I need a different challenge or I need a whatever or something needs to change about the situation. Um, If they do something about it, awesome. Then you have more energy building days than depleting days. But if they don't and you have the opportunity to try something different that will stretch you, that will push you, that will challenge you and invigorate you, then I feel like you owe it to yourself to to go for it. It's interesting when I, I left, I mean, I, I loved P&G, I had a great career there, but I left and I started my own thing and I worked, I think, even more hours. But my mm. wife said to me, one of my board of directors, she said, you just never seem tired. Mm. You're just full of good energy, mm. like all the time, even the though time. you're working at least as many hours. Yeah, yeah. And that was a strong signal that I had made the right move. That you made the right At move. the right time. Yeah, exactly. You've had three prominent CMO jobs, right? You had CoverGirl, Mac, and Amazon Prime Studios. If you were to coach a first-time CMO <laughs> about how to approach the work, how to approach the job, what sorts of things to think about, to value, to work on, what would your advice be coaching that first-time CMO? First-time CMO. Um, it's never too early set, to set a vision. Um, make sure you do that. Make sure you do that early. Um, you are the heart and soul, or you have the potential to be the heart and soul of the company. Um, marketing is so special as a function um, because you, a lot of times, are the advocate for the customer. And you kind of have to think of yourself as that. Um, I am here to be the voice of the customer in every situation, in every conversation, and make sure that we are consistently delighting the customer every single time. When you find yourself focusing more on the internal politics, Mm -hmm. conversations, whatever, than the customer, um, we have lost our way. And we specifically as CMOs are not doing our job. And so if we are not talking about what would delight a customer, what would surprise a customer, what will engage and bring in and cause them to to participate in the brand and in the business, if that's not being discussed, then we have missed a huge part of what our responsibility is. Um, And so we should never tire of being the advocate for them. The second is get to shared goals and KPIs early with your C-suite. Um, because if your goals are completely different and your KPIs are completely different than your peers, you're going to have a long, tough road. So if you guys can all work together on the same goals and the same KPIs, figure that out early. 
And a lot of times you're going to come in and you realize you don't have that. And it's time well spent to engage your CEO and your peers in aligning those goals and KPIs really, really early. And then the last bit I would say is um, a lot of times CMOs can be the heart and the soul of the company because we tell the story of the company. We tell the story of the people, whether it's in advertising or even in employer branding communication or in um, philanthropic efforts. Like a lot of times our teams are the ones who write the stories of what the company stand for. And so if you fully embrace that, it can be a really powerful role to play um, because you can change the way people feel about the brand and the business and the company. That's pretty amazing um, when you think about it. And so if you kind of step out of, you know, your marketing function and go, how can I make people love this company? How can I make people love this brand? How can I make people love this business? Um, And you think about your job as bigger than that. Um, then that's when I feel like you really start to act as the heart and soul um, of the company. Not you as an individual, but you as an org, as a marketing function. You can start to act as the heart and soul of the company and endear the company to more people internally and externally. And I think that can be a really, really special place to be. I love that thought. We've talked a lot at the Deloitte Academy here about influence. And how do you expand your influence outside marketing to the company? And you just laid out a beautiful way to do that. Yeah, I feel like we don't always realize that we can play that role. But when you start to walk in those shoes and you start to play that role, you see how meaningful it is. Um, Not just to customers externally, um, but to people internally. And more and more, customers are looking at employees to realize if this is a company they want to value or not. This is a company that, you know, they want to be a part of their lives. And so if you can even play a small to medium to big role in changing um, the experience of the teams that you have or customers that are part of the of your ecosystem, I would say, like, step into those shoes and, and do it with a lot of heart and soul. Amazon was your first non-CPG job since business school. What could CPG companies learn from how Amazon does branding, marketing, customer engagement, Mm. Amazon Prime? I think that one of the hardest things about being part in a CPG world is we cared so much about the customer, but we didn't have a lot of first-party insights about the customer because that a lot of times was with the retailer. Now with the pandemic, a lot of people have really pivoted and have strong D2C capabilities now. But when a lot of us grew up in CPG, um, we would wait for Nielsen to tell us, you know, how it went. (laughs) And even then, there wasn't a lot of nuance Mm -hmm. to the information that you have. And um, what I would say is move with speed and agility to get as much insight about your customers as possible so that you can get ahead of what they may even be asking of you. And there were so many ways that we got around that. We did it with focus groups. We did it with surveys. We did it with questionnaires. We did it with so, in so many ways. But you never get to do that at scale and you miss the niche, right? You always kind of go to like g- general population or the lowest common denominator. Um, but the more first party um, information you can have about your customers and the feedback that they give you 
um, you can then move with speed to delight them and to answer a lot of those questions or to deliver a lot of those innovations or new products or new insights. And there was just a bigger gap between the company and the customers than you have in the tech world. And I think if we marry the discipline that we had um, as a marketing group within the CPG world with the fingertip insight um, and data that you have in the tech world, I think that combination could be incredibly powerful um, and, in my opinion, would be unbeatable. What could Amazon Prime learn from CBG marketers? Um, that, that, that discipline, that day-to-day discipline of really telling the story of what the brand is about, what the product is about, um, and doing it frequently, um, doing it with rigor, um, doing it with incredible passion, and consistently year over year over year. Because you have to think about a lot of CPG brands, they've been around for decades and in some cases centuries. A lot of the tech world hasn't had to do that yet. They haven't had to play the long game, like not for a decade. They haven't had to build things for decades. And being able to steward what a brand stands for over decades and centuries, that is a discipline and an art and a science um, that tech is now having to figure out, right? Which is why um, the skills that we learn as CPG marketers are very valuable. So I think you take the combination of that stewardship and that discipline and that science and you marry it with the speed and agility and insights and analytics of tech. I really think that combination would be unbeatable. That yeah. In your time in Amazon Prime, what's the most meaningful to you campaign or initiative that you worked on? For me, it would be the launch of Coming to America 2 mm. because It showed the power of the global Black diaspora. Um, Here was a movie that had a majority Black cast that became a global phenomenon. At the point in time since Nielsen had been measuring when we launched it, no movie had ever had the number one spot for two weeks in a row. Because to get in the Nielsen streaming rankings, It's about billions of minutes watched. And so because series have so many episodes, it was always topped by series for the most part. But to have a movie, not only top it in the number one spot, but do it for two weeks in a row, no movie had ever done it in streaming. And so to have a majority Black movie with a majority Black cast do what had never been done for any title in streaming, it shows the power of what some would describe as underrepresented Mm -hmm. groups or smaller demographics. And it's just fake news. It's not true. You can tap into powerful insights that are really human, that underrepresented groups, as you would describe them, bring to bear and show them to the world and create global movements that can transform an entire business. And so I love all the opportunities throughout my career. I was able to do it on Honey Nut Cheerios, same thing. It was the first time that Flanker got to be bigger than 
you know, the original. So Honey Nut Cheerios, when I worked on it, got to be bigger than Yellow Box Cheerios. It had never happened before. But we did that off of the backs of Latino audiences and Black audiences. And once again, just showing people that you can have meaningful, huge, big impact um, speaking to audiences that other people ignore. And Honey Nut Cheerios became the number one player in cereal. So not only did it become bigger than Yellow Box Cheerios, but it became the number one cereal brand, period, um, because of Latino audiences, because of Black audiences. And so I learned that as an assistant marketing manager, and it has stayed with me through my career. I believe that with my whole heart. Um, and I consistently look for opportunities to demonstrate that, um, but also impact the business as a result of it. Those are great stories. For our listeners, what are the principles that you pull from those two cases, and there are others, that you would want them to think about in marketing their brands? Um, it goes back to if you are there to provide a different perspective, be that. And so I'm like, if I'm here as a woman, as a Black woman, I am going to help the organization understand how to connect with that audience. And when it's done correctly, because you have the right people um, that have a seat at the table, you can do things that that organization has never seen before. In the case of Honey Nut Cheerios, we got a flanker to be bigger than the original. And we got to get the number one market share in a multi-billion dollar category that's highly competitive and fragmented. In the case of Coming to America, we got to be the only movie that has ever had the number one spot two weeks in a row because you get to show up as who you were created to be and you serve as an interpreter and a connector between the organization and that community and you help them to do it correctly. And never underestimate the power of that. Never, ever, ever underestimate the power of that. And lean into that um, because a lot of times your superpower is very much linked into who you are. Um, and so never be ashamed to show up as who you were created to be, because the power in what you have to give is very much rooted within that. That's a good way to segue into the creative brief. And we're going to focus this on leadership because mm. we're here at Deloitte U and we're talking about leadership with the next generation of CMOs. What do you feel is the most important characteristic of a successful CMO? I think the most successful CMOs do two things really well. One, I fundamentally believe that without vision, people perish. And I think um, it's, a, it's a quote from the Bible that I, that I believe wholeheartedly. And so working with the team to figure out where you're going um, and drafting that vision of where you're going so everybody can be on the same page, I think that's critically, critically important. And then the second bit is empowering the team to do that and really just like getting out of the way. Because I'm like, if you agree the vision, you agree the tenets, and you agree the KPIs, that's your job as CML. The rest of it, because you are one person, you have an entire org of people who are highly capable and have a lot of ideas. And if you give them the freedom to go towards that vision, living by those tenets, to deliver on the, those KPIs, and you measure them against those KPIs and you just like let them rip, you'll be so surprised at how much potential and possibilities exist. Um, so yeah, because at the end of the day, you're just one person. But those three things, while sounding really simple, 
are really hard to do. But I believe that they're a core part of your role as a leader, and in particular, your role as a CMO. What leader in your career has had a very large impact on you? Um, I've had a couple. One, I had Jim McGrain, who was CIO when I started my career in finance, when I decided I wanted to switch into marketing and I wanted to go to business school. Um, I wanted to pick a school that, it was, that was in my local area. And I went to go talk to him about it. And I, he made time to mentor me and he accepted the meeting. And he basically said to me, no, you're not going to go to that local school. You're going to go to a top school. Um, these are the top schools. I didn't even know at the time that they had top business schools. I didn't really have a community of folks who um, played in that space. And he told me what the top schools were. And he said he would go as far as writing my letter of recommendation. And he did. I you know, took the GMAT, like he said. He wrote my recommendation. And I got into the top school for marketing. So he was right. And I went to Kellogg. Um, and the rest, they say, is history. Because I wouldn't have this marketing career path. I started at General Mills, which I interned with there. And I went on to if Jim hadn't given me the confidence and the actual support of writing my recommendation letter um, to get started in that career. Um, Jim's passed away now, but as many times as I can say his name and have people recognize the impact he's had on my life, um, I like to share that. And then there are two Black women um, that I saw do what I did that gave me the confidence that I could do this. Um, one of them was Jerry DeVard who is just an incredibly beautiful, smart, famous um, Black CMO. And she blazed the trail for a lot of us and showed the world the possibility of what we could do as Black women in that seat. And so being a young woman in marketing as an assistant manager and seeing her as CMO and going, wow, she's doing that? And she's doing it in her own way. She was so fashionable and so stylish and so still smart. Is. She was like, right. it still is. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, but at the time, I was like, oh, my God. Like, I want to be her. Like, I literally yeah. want to be her. Um, and so she gave us the example of what it looked like, felt like, sounded like. Um, and today, we're, like, really good friends. And I am, like, so thankful that she's been so generous um, to be friends with so many of us that, like, she is, was our icon. Um, the second was Ann Fudge. Mm. Um, and I remember I met Ann Fudge. She came back to General Mills. I invited her to come speak. I was the president of the Black Champions Network. And I invited her to come speak. And when she came to speak, I realized that she launched Honey Nut Cheerios. And she had become a CEO um, of an advertising agency. And that was the first time that it hit me. I was like, oh, wow. She worked on the same brand and she became CEO. I'm on Honey Nut Cheerios now. I could be CEO. And I was like, wow. Like, it could actually, like, that was the first time mm -hmm. that it all, like, click, 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 click. I was like, oh, like, she literally on the same brand that I worked on. I was like. She, it literally can happen. And so I will always thank those two women for showing me um, what was possible. And I'm so thankful for the trail that they blazed so that I and so many others could be here. They are two remarkable women. I, I've been on lots of industry things and Jerry's more my generation. Mm -hmm. And I remember her being the only black woman CMO in the room and just changing the energy in the room. Yeah. 
And she still does it. Today. And she still like Jerry changes the energy yeah. in every room she yeah. walks in. Yeah. Um, she is a truly special human being. And I'm very honored to call her both friend and mentor. What leader do you feel like you've made a big impact on? I don't know. I hope many. I hear from people all the time that seeing me, um, because I show up as who I was created to be. Um, I'm very I'm okay with being vulnerable and authentic. Um, that it's given them license to show up as who they are, were as well. And I've heard that from leaders at the very top of their game. And I've also heard that from people who are coming up in their career. And so if I could play a small role in showing people that it's possible to be successful as who they are. Um, And I didn't always know that. Um, I remember it was a very small thing, but it ended up being a really big thing in my life and in my career. I was watching the Oscars and I saw Viola Davis on the red carpet in her natural hair. I had never seen it before. And I was like, she went to the Oscars in her natural hair and I can't go to work Mm. in my own natural hair? Like how it grew out of my head. And it was a small thing. I did the big chop after that. And I transitioned my hair to be natural. And it started out as a small thing, but it was a small thing that led to a lot of bigger things. Because I was like, oh, what else can I just show up as? Oh, what about the fact that I just love blah, blah, blah? And what about the fact that I'm really into this? And what about the fact that I love this? And I just kept bringing more and more and more and more about myself into the work that I did. And it actually made me more successful because you brought in a different perspective that didn't exist before you. And it just fundamentally changed the rooms that I was in. It changed who I was. And so I feel like of all the things that people have shared with me over the years, that's the one that I'm the proudest of is you give us license to show up as who we are. And if I can do that for more people, that for me would be something to be continue to be proud of. We're here together at this Deloitte program. What other leadership experience are you looking forward to over the coming year? I am looking forward to being uncomfortable. I love the feeling of discomfort. It really stretches you. Most of the most successful initiatives or campaigns that I've done in my career have always come with a knot in the stomach. And I pay attention to that energy. If I never, if I don't feel that anymore, then I'm not stretching myself enough. And so I'm looking forward to leadership experiences that give me knots in my stomach. Um, because that's when I get to do things that I've never done before. And that's when I get to empower my team and the teams around me um, to do things that we collectively have never done before. And I have the most fun doing that. Um, so I hope that the future has more of those. Um, Because that means that we're all going to stretch and that we're all going to grow and hopefully have a lot of fun human interactions uh, along the way. But yeah, that's what I'm looking for. You've given us another headline for this episode. We may have to break (laughs) it into two. Ukanma, thank you for this. I mean, massively inspiring. I'm so happy to have gotten to know you over the last couple of days and in our call we did a few weeks ago. So I hope we can stay in touch. All the best of to you. Course. I hope you find something that gives you a knot in your stomach. Knot in stomach. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say thank you to you because you very much could have just a lot of CMOs did really great work and then just like rode off into the sunset. But you didn't. And you chose to pay that forward. 
and you chose to empower and educate and inspire like generations of CMOs after that and your legacy and your impact will be so much bigger as a result of that. So thank you, not just for this platform, but for all the other platforms that I know that you have within the community that has had an impact on so many of us um, and so many people like keep going and please don't stop that. Um, Cause it's crying. We better, we better stop this, but no, like thank it's, you. you didn't have to do that. A lot of people chose not to do that. But the fact that you did that has really changed the trajectory of so many people's careers. And so I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the impact that you've had on me and so many people um, in the marketing community. And I hope that you continue to do this because it's so helpful. Thank you. Thank you. That was my conversation with Okanwa Ojo. And what a chat that was. Here are three lessons for your business brand and life. The first one is how to create an environment of positive energy. With positive energy comes creativity, innovation, and growth. This was a masterclass in how to create the environment for positive energy. Second takeaway, Okanwa really went through the potential, the business potential of representing underrepresented groups in our marketing and in our business. She talked about Honey Nut Cheerios being now the number one cereal brand. She talked about the, the incredible records that Coming to America broke. When you present underrepresented people in the right way, with the right intention, amazing things happen. Third takeaway, be sure your KPIs, your measurement, your key performance indicators for yourself and your marketing team are aligned with others in the C-suite. It sounds like a very simple principle. We don't do it enough. And that's an early conversation to have when you're a new CMO. And bonus takeaway, the power of a personal board of directors. Okanwa has one. She leverages it beautifully. It's composed mostly of friends who know her well. It's a great concept. It's worked for me. Everyone should do what they can to get a personal board of directors. It helps in the key decisions in your life. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, Leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.